0: One of the most amazing moments in a parent's life has got to be when your child speaks for the first time. When your child begins to communicate with you, your child enters into your world. They go from being someone who can't address you, who you can't relate to. So all of a sudden, this communication opens up. Your relationship with them immediately grows deeper. You can speak to them. They can speak to you. Let's set aside that you can't get them to stop speaking once they, they learn how to. That's beside the point this morning. Um, and I don't remember, and most of us don't, but I can imagine as a child, that's got to be one of the most profound moments in your life. When you go from crying for everything to being able to express what you need from your parents who love you, instead of just crying when you're hungry, you can now Tell them that you're hungry. Tell them what you're hungry for. Instead of crying when you're unhappy or you're in pain, you can tell them where it hurts. And instead of just uh, giggling when you see them walk in the door, you can tell them how happy you are to see them come home. How encouraged you are that they love you and take care of you. And hopefully as children you do that. Children, you should do that. And I want us to think about prayer like this. Because there was a moment, Paul tells us in, um, in Romans that we were groaning and, and there were words that we didn't, we don't know what to say. But then the Holy Spirit comes within us and we get to cry out to our Father. And we, as those children, move from just crying and uttering sounds that no one understands to being able, through the Holy Spirit, to speak to our Father who is in heaven. That is what we're going to look at this morning. I want to read a quote uh, from one of my favorite books. Uh, if you ever confused about the Trinity or you want to read a good book on the Trinity, uh, Fred Sanders' The Deep Things of God opened my eyes. It was amazing. A very biblical, personal, relational approach to understanding the Trinity. Here's what he says about prayer. Um, and I want to read this and I want you to, to pay attention because this is this is really good, and, and sometimes prayer becomes mechanistic, becomes impersonal, uh, but this is a, is a biblical, familial, family outlook on prayer. So he says, not only are we coming to God the Father in a way that echoes the salvation historical unfolding of the Gentiles into the promises of Abraham, but we are coming to God the Father in a way that retraces the path of his sending the Son and the Spirit revealing Himself and redeeming us. Prayer thus opens this eternal Trinitarian vista. There is always already a conversation going on among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we are joining that conversation. We have been invited to call on God as Father, invited by a spirit of Sonship that cries out, Abba, Abba, Father, just as the eternal Son does. This insight leads us to a second advantage of attending to the Trinitarian dynamic of Christian prayer. It takes the pressure off of us to make prayer happen. Not only are the Son and the Spirit involved as intercessors in our prayer, but they are also communicating life in the very being of God that is analogous to prayer or a part of prayer. We are invited to enter that eternal conversation in an appropriately lower creaturely creaturely way, but this heavenly prayer is already going on in the life of God and rather than waiting for us to get it started. If you have ever become weary in working up the right response in prayer or worship, you can glimpse the relief of being able to approach prayer and worship with the knowledge that the party already started before you arrived. I love that picture of prayer. This idea that there's a divine frequency that uh, kind of like radio waves that have always existed. But it was about 150 years ago when we discovered radio waves. And we were able to communicate on a higher level uh, and go further distances through radio waves. The same way prayer is in the life of a believer. This conversation is always going on. But when Christ saves you, and the Holy Spirit transforms you. You now can tune in your dial, and communicate with the Father, the Son and the Spirit. That is the prayer we're going to learn about this morning. I love what the great Puritan Thomas Manton said about this. And I want you to pay close attention here. Prayer is a preaching to ourselves in God's hearing. We speak to God to warn ourselves, not for his information, but for our edification. Listen to that. That we approach God in prayer, not for his information, not because he doesn't know what's going on, but for our edification, for our building up. We must know who we are approaching before we can know what to say. Once we know who we are approaching and we know what his word says about him, then we can know what to say. Once we know that our God is holy and eternal and loving and just, then we can pray according to his will and his word. And this morning, I want you to pay attention with me because I want to teach you to pray biblically. So this is not going to be a sermon that has a lot of illustrations and a lot of stories. It's going to have a lot of scripture. You're going to flip back and forth a lot. And it's OK. If you can't keep up with me, write the verse down. I want you to meditate on this through the week. Because many times if we don't know what to ask for in prayer and how to ask for in prayer, it's because we haven't spent enough time in God's word. We're going to do that this morning. Let's pray before we get into our text. Heavenly Father, you reign over all. You sit on the throne of heaven and all of the earth is at your feet. Lord, let us approach you with this always in mind. Seated next to the Ancient of Days is the Son of Man who sent the Spirit of Truth into our lives to declare who he was and how we should approach him. He taught us how to pray. He taught us how to approach the Father. He taught us how to love one another and keep his commandments. Pray that this morning that my words would be clear, that the Spirit would speak through me, that the truth of who we pray to, how we pray, and who our God is, is first and foremost in how we pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're just going to cover two verses this morning. And in these two verses, I could probably preach 10 weeks, and I really wanted to. Um, Each one of these words here, we're going to do a word study on. And I would have loved to spend a week on each one of these words in your outlines. If you don't have an outline, there's a few more in the back. Um, I really want you to dig into this with me. This we all know very well. But I don't want this to be another ritualistic thing that we do. Many times you hear the Lord's Prayer recited before football games, and it's a bunch of big sweaty guys yelling it out, without actually thinking about what all these words mean. All of us have done that. You start praying the Lord's Prayer and everyone follows along. But do you meditate on all these words? Jesus told us this is how we should pray. This is our pattern in the posture that we approach prayer in. Do we take time to reflect on that? In these two simple verses, there are profound truths that are summed up in all of the counsel of God. And I want us to see that this morning. So in chapter 6, we're just going to read verses 9 and 10. I want to do it slowly and intentionally. Then we're going to spend time on it as we go through. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First thing I want us to see here, Jesus says, pray in this manner. Many times we assume that this is the only way uh, that Jesus taught us how to pray. No, Jesus is giving us a pattern for prayer. Each term here, each verse is symbolic in how we should approach God. And we're going to do a word study uh, on these, these terms. And I want you to see that. I want you to see that Jesus did not mince words here. He didn't just throw unnecessary jargon together. This isn't just some uh, stream of, of of consciousness thought process. Each word is important for the life of a believer. So he starts with, Our father. We start with the first word, our. This is a corporate prayer. We are praying in a unified manner. We pray as one, our father. I don't pray differently to my father than you do to your father. If you are indeed in Christ, you pray to our father. We pray as one, as a unified body in Christ. And we pray to our father. In the first 18 verses here of chapter six, Jesus says father 10 times. We Spent the last few weeks here and we've told you over and over again, uh, Jewish families, when they would teach kids, how do they get kids to remember repetition? Jewish mothers would sit home and they'd have them recite the Torah over and over, over and over. So when Jesus repeats something, so when Paul repeats something, when Moses repeats something, it's for emphasis. It's for our for us to pay attention. When Jesus is talking about giving, he's talking about praying, he's talking about fasting. He's talking about it in light of who our daddy is. Our father is in heaven and our father is watching. We do things to please our father, not some distant God, not some God who kind of hears sometimes but our father who loves us, who sent his only son for us. This passage is immersed with this family language. And when we see Jesus pray in John 17 from a son to a father. There's this family language of oneness. Jesus prayed for us to be one with the son and the father, the way they are one with each other. So this idea of father, father, and this repetition is not something we should ignore because we're so used to hearing it, but it should sink down deep. This is reverent. Yes, it is holy. Yes, but it is personal. It is a family conversation. We get to come to our daddy's feet and lay our problems at his feet. And our father is in heaven. This is specific. This is not our father on Mount Olympus. It's not our God who we've made and crafted into our own image. Our father is in heaven. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are above our ways. He is otherworldly. Sometimes we look around and we think that this is all there is. Because I can see it, because I can touch it, because I can taste it and smell it. This is what is real. Jesus is telling us our father is in heaven. There is a heaven beyond this earth and our father reigns there. And when we approach him, we approach his heavenly throne. We don't approach it as temporal beings, as we read just a moment ago, but we approach it as family members who have been brought into this eternal conversation. The father, the son and the spirit have been speaking in perfect love and unity for eternity. When the spirit comes within us, we get to cry to our father who is in heaven. And we're going to see how heaven has come down to earth a little bit later in the message. This is probably uh, maybe one of the most important doctrines in all of Scripture, this next line. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed, set apart, made holy, sanctified. Set apart from everything else on earth. Hallowed be your name. Let me let you in on something. His name is hallowed already. But it should be hallowed in our lives and hallowed when we speak to people. Shouldn't be thrown around flippantly. We were talking about this, this yesterday about how many times people use the Lord's name in vain. I mean, what a great trick of the devil, right? How do you minimize God's name? Well, you make it a curse word, you make it a byword. The name of God to Israel was so sacred they wouldn't even speak it. Yahweh could not even be uttered. They would say the name or the divine name because they were in such fear of blaspheming the name of God. That is how we are to hallow his name. Yahweh in Hebrew meant I am. Essence of being, being itself is our God. You couldn't even describe him in terms just that he is He is being itself. I am. That should shudder us when we think about flippantly using God's name. Because his name stands for him himself. Lord, we sanctify your name. We set it apart. We set you apart as holy. God's name is inextricably linked to his character. So I want to turn to a few verses here. I want to show you what God says about his only about his name in Exodus chapter 34. So throughout the rest of the sermon, I'm going to be going through a lot of scripture. Again, if you have a hard time turning, write the passage down, spend some time meditating on on it this week. Um, But I want you to see several things in scripture. When God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, here's how he chooses to speak about his own name. Exodus 34 verses 5 and 7. Five through seven, excuse me. Exodus 34, five says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Stop for a moment. Think about Moses standing on Mount Sinai and God descends and declares his name. This is what he says to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear all the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We see here that God is merciful. God is also just. Does not let sin go unpunished, but for those who turn to him and repent, he is merciful. I want you to turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96.2 is a verse uh, that we print on every bulletin that we have as the vision of, of, of who we are. Think if one verse in scripture that describes what the mission of the church is and how we should be defined, it's Psalm 96.2. But it's in a context of how we are to talk about the name of God. I want to read verses one through nine. Psalm 96, one through nine. Listen to what David says about the name of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord, all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. When they say ascribe here, it's essentially give. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Want to know what hallowed be that name looks like and sounds like? Sounds a little bit like that. Uh, probably one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is the Tower of Babel. You get all the nations of the earth come together. They're still in one language. The, the language hadn't been babbled yet. What was their goal? The goal was to build a tower to heaven so they could be like God and do what? Make a name for themselves. The greatest wickedness that we can do and that the world does is to make a name for themselves over the name of God. It so angered God that he babbled and confused their languages and sent them on their way. Never again should all men come together and try to be like God. It's a little bit like everything in our culture, right? Look at me. Look at my name. How many followers I have. Let me build up my brand. Let me bring attention to myself. The world is about glorifying itself. Mankind is about glorifying himself. But we, as followers of Christ, we, as people of God, should be about glorifying his name. Christians and ministers of the gospel, especially should be about magnifying God's name and not our own. This isn't about me or my reputation or Justin and his reputation. It's about us getting out of the way so God's name can be magnified. And if anyone who calls themselves a minister of the gospel is more concerned about their name than God's, run and call it out as blasphemy. Because last week we looked at these sins of recognition. People who wanted to pray to be noticed by others. People who fasted to be noticed by others. People who gave to be noticed by others. Look at me. Look at how great I am. No. It's one of the greatest sins of pride is to put attention on ourselves and bring it away from God. In his holy name. Even Jesus. His goal was to glorify God at the expense of himself. Jesus humbled himself to glorify God. John 12, I want to read two verses here. Listen to what Jesus says about the name of the Father. John 12, 27 and 28. This is Jesus talking about going to be on the cross. The greatest suffering man would ever know. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' whole purpose coming, dying on the cross, saving sinners, was to glorify the name of the Father. There's no greater glory to the Father than when a sinner, a wicked person, repents and turns in faith and makes Christ's sacrifice on the cross, a celebration, not a time for mourning. So, Next, we see verse 10. Your kingdom come. Only when we learn who God is and what we are to do with his name, how it is, and set it apart, can we pray faithfully that your kingdom may come. Now, kingdom. This is one of those words and those concepts that can get so convoluted. And there are a thousand different variations of what God's kingdom is. If any version of your kingdom explanation or explanations you've heard is glorifying man, that is not a biblical picture of the kingdom of God. So I'm not going to get into all of those theories, but I do want to look at a couple things that scripture says about the kingdom of God, specifically what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anyone he should know. So there's this, uh, I- idea that in a sense all of the Christian life is now and not yet. It is already and it is to come. I'll give you an example. Jesus, when he, when he came, he said, the kingdom is in your midst. He's talking about himself. The spiritual kingdom had come with Christ. His incarnation was the first inauguration of God's kingdom. I'll repeat that. His incarnation Christ coming in the flesh was the first inauguration of God's kingdom. At that moment, the kingdom began to work in our world. The spiritual kingdom that was transforming people from the inside out began in Christ and was outflowed in his ministry. He told Pharisees who were trying to find that kingdom what would happen when the kingdom came. Jesus told them, it's in your midst. You're looking at it. It was already... But it's not yet. Because you remember when they were uh when they were chastising him, he says that my kingdom is not of this world. Well, which one is it? Is it already come or is it not of this world? It's both. It has come in a spiritual sense because each one of us has been transformed by the gospel, the kingdom has invaded our lives and changed us from the inside out. One day his kingdom will be fulfilled perfectly and totally and in this whole conversation it's important to recognize that christ is ruling now he doesn't start to rule when the kingdom is fulfilled in the future he is ruling now when he died on the cross and he rose again and he said it is finished he went and sat at the right hand of the father ruling but he will one day rule in a very physical very real way here on earth the new heavens and the new earth So the kingdom is now and not yet already and yet to come in your midst. We see this partial influx of the kingdom and yet to come. We see its fullness. Jesus' first words when he's preaching in Mark chapter one. How does Mark uh, want to to address the first words of Jesus? Mark 1 15 says the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how Jesus started his ministry. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. The king came to earth. What we saw in Jesus' ministry here on earth was that every miracle, every teaching, every healing was to look forward to the fullness of his kingdom. It was to show you a little bit of the kingdom. When the blind see, it's the kingdom come to earth. The lame walk, it's the kingdom come to earth. When the good news is proclaimed to the poor, it's the kingdom come to earth. When he turned water into wine, it's looking forward to when we will drink wine again with him in the new heavens. If you don't like wine, you will drink some with Jesus, I promise you. He said he said so. When he when he cast the Holy Spirit, he breathed his Holy Spirit onto his disciples. It's the coming of the kingdom. The Spirit of God that hovered over the waters in creation hovered over our hearts and took them from stone to flesh. The kingdom came. And every time a life is transformed, the kingdom is on full display. Paul in Romans 14 tells us about the kingdom. Romans 14 verse 7, I'm just going to read one verse. Uh, You don't have to turn there. But when people were arguing about what to eat, should we eat this or should we eat this? What does Paul tell them? Listen very closely here. Romans 14, 7. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So how does Paul define the kingdom of God? Paul didn't use this term kingdom very much. He talked about salvation. He talked about a lot of things, but he didn't talk about kingdom. Jesus had done that. What is the kingdom of God? Righteousness and peace and joy. These words, again, are not flippantly used. The order is important here. Righteousness comes first. Before you are transformed by the Holy Spirit and you are declared righteous before God, there is no peace and there is no joy. The kingdom of God is first righteousness. Once our righteousness is is secured by the Spirit in the Son, by declaration of the Father, we can have peace. And we can rest in who we are. Once we know where our righteousness is, once we know the peace that we have, then joyfully we can rejoice. We can declare what has been done in our lives. Because the kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy. Um, I read a little bit, you guys might have noticed. Um, I brought a couple books with me this morning, uh, just a little. Peek behind the curtain. I, I I don't have any secrets. If you ever want to know where did you get that from, or how did you where did you read that from, I will share whatever I have with you. Um, this little book is amazing. Uh, a W Pink uh, wrote in the first half of um, the last century. It's on the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer. Each page, each chapter is like one verse, half a verse. It's five pages, and it's just humbling. So I want I want you to hear what he says about this doctrine of, of, of the kingdom. And I think he's spot on. We say again that though this is the most brief of the petitions, it is also the most comprehensive in praying thy kingdom come. We plead for the power and the blessing of the Holy spirit to attend to the preaching of the word for the church to be furnished with God giving and God equipped officers for the ordinances to be purely administrators Administrated, for an increase of spiritual gifts and graces in Christ's members, and for the overthrow of Christ's enemies. Thus we pray that the kingdom of grace may be further extended to the whole of God's elect that are brought into it. Also, by necessary implication, we pray that God will wean us more and more from the perishing things of this world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God's will, another one of those things that is confused, distorted, and acts about. I'm going to give you the key to God's will. No, it is not some little cheesy formula. I'm going to stick with what I've been doing so far. We're going to look in scripture. I'm going to tell you exactly what God's will is for your life. If you want to know, and if you ask me, this is what I will tell you. God's will is our alignment and obedience to his desires and his control and not our own. Simple as that our alignment to God's desires and his control, not our own. Before we get into what the scripture says about God's will, I want you to understand something. That many times we talk about God's will, we talk about a set of practices. Well, if this is God's will, I need to do X, Y, and Z. But no, before the practices must come principles. Principles transform our heart. and They shape our character and in turn drive our actions. I've said this before and I want you to to remember that we are inside out people. We're not outside in people. I don't do these practices and then my heart is changed. It's No, when my heart is changed, it it outflows out of me. We're inside out, not outside in. Our convictions drive our conduct. Our convictions drive our conduct and our convictions are based on the word of God. Okay, what does that have to do with God's will? How do I know what God's will is for my life? How do we know what God's will is and do it? This is very simple, yet very difficult. Meditate on God's word day and night. That's it. Read Psalm 119. Look at the rhythm of David's life. I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. You Want to know God's will for your life? Get in God's word. When people come to me and ask me, and it happens all the time. Well, what is God's will for my life? I don't even need to hear what you're asking. What school do I go to? What job do I I, I take? Do I move from here or, or there? I don't even ask. What does your quiet time look like? What does your life in God's word look like? You want to know God's will? How often are you reading scripture? You want to know God's will? What does his word say? And if you can't answer that, spend more time in his word and less time worrying about your situations. So let me let you in on a little secret. Like Abraham did with Lot, didn't matter if he went right or left. Abraham's faith was in the Lord. Didn't matter where he went, the Lord would be with him. God's will for your life is for you to walk with him in the spirit, being indwelt and indrenched in his word. That's God's will for your life. Because if you take this job here, you move to this city here, he'll be with you. If you are abiding in him. But if it's all about the decision and it's not about God and and, and his word, then the best you have to look forward to is whether you made the right decision or not. How do I train myself to do that? That's hard. I can't read the Bible. Start today. Read tomorrow. Read the day after that, the day after that. Then once that gets old, you keep reading. Read again. And over time, an interesting thing happens. It's called sanctification. You grow. You grow in God's word. Something you understood the last time you read it, you you didn't understand then, but you understand now. I mean, we expect this of athletes and soldiers, right? You train for weeks and months until you get to the battlefield, until you get to the court or the ball field. Then your training kicks in. I've done this a thousand times. I've been through the drills. I know what happens next. But as Christians, we don't spend that time in scripture. And then when life's troubles come against us, we're like, oh, what do I do now? I need to look back to my training, but I haven't been training myself. So, a reason when Paul talks about the armor of God, he puts it in military terms. We are to be soldiers in a spiritual war rooted with our one offensive weapon just the word of God. Our sword is to be wielded precisely and accurately, and you don't know how to use a sword unless you've been practicing with it. You might cut your own finger off if it's the first time you pick it up when you get into battle. But if you're practicing with it day and night, you get into battle. It's like an extension of your own hand. Here's another little key I want to let you into. We will never have all the answers. We will never have the satisfying answers to all the deep burning questions we have about Scripture. God, in his infinite mercy, did not choose to reveal all of himself to us. He's revealed a lot of himself. He's revealed exactly what he wants for us in Scripture. But there are still questions. One verse, if you want one verse for God's will, one verse for God's will, turn to me uh, with me, to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, all the way to the left, 29, 29. On the surface, this may seem nothing, seem seem like it have nothing to do with, with God's will. But this is so profound. Remember this whenever you struggle with scripture. Remember this whenever you struggle with a doctrine. Remember that God is God and you're not. Rule number one, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. All right, let's get that out of the way. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. He's God. He doesn't have to tell you everything. Get over it. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. You want to know what God's will is for your life follow what he's revealed to us these words are for us God's word his revelation for mankind is in almost every house in America in every bookstore and available for free on every smartphone yet we can't find time to read it we want to know what God's will is for our life we spend time seeking for the the, the secret things the things we don't know God has given us so much, this deep well of spiritual truth, righteousness, peace, and joy is declared in God's word. I also love what A.W. Pink says about this, and I had to quote him here. Our Father, let thy will be revealed to me. Let it be worked in me. And let it be performed by me. You say that again. It's good stuff. What does it mean to pray that his will be done? Father, let your will be done to, excuse me. Let your will be revealed to me. Let it be worked in me. And let it be performed by me. On earth. As it is in heaven. As I said earlier. This is the divine economy. This is heaven invading earth. And heaven came down to earth in the form of a man. How does his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Remember, Christ's incarnation is the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is done on earth as in heaven by following Christ and following his example. God knew we couldn't get to heaven on our own, so God came down to us. He brought heaven to us. This is where he saved us. This is where he sanctifies us. This is where he grows us, and this is where growth happens for now, on earth, as it is in heaven. And the light of heaven shines brightest in the midst of a dark and dying world. I want to let you in on a little secret here. You know what God's plan was for mankind? We look all the way back to the garden. It was a beautiful garden. It was peace. It was fruit of every kind and man walking unblemished with his God. That is God's plan for man. Heaven was on earth in the garden. and Heaven will be on earth one day again. When the kingdom is fulfilled and he wipes away every tear, and we will one day walk again with our god unblemished in the heat of the day the cool of the morning we will dwell with him and what do we do until this kingdom is fulfilled and until earth the old earth passes away and the new heavens and the new earth come what do we do well peter tells us second peter chapter 3 verse 11 I'm going to read 2 Peter 3, verse 11 through 13. So he's talking about heaven and earth passing away. All right, this is all temporary. What does Peter say that we should do? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what do we do? There's no secret sauce here. We wait. We rest in the righteousness and the peace and the joy that comes with being in Christ now. And we wait until we dwell in perfect righteousness with him again. When we came together for the first Sunday, Grace Fellowship and Relevant preached from uh, Revelation 19. And the two things that the body was doing, they were rejoicing and they were ready. So we are to do to rest in who God is as his kingdom come, as it's worked out through us. As we get to see the miracles, as we get to see lives transformed, we trust in his will. Call out for his kingdom and we wait. and we'll see next week that doesn't stop there because before Jesus talks about how we pray for ourselves and how we pray for the needs of the body, we have to know who God is first. We have to address our Father who's in heaven. We have to know. His name, hollow it, lift it up, sing his praises. We have to look for his kingdom, not our own, the kingdom that has come and then the kingdom that is yet to come. We are to know His will by being in His word. And we are to pray that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to close with a prayer from David. I want to know what this will be our closing prayer. First uh, Chronicles twenty nine eleven through eighteen. I want to know what it is to pray in this fashion. The man after God's own heart. How did he pray before the assembly of the nation? First Chronicles twenty nine eleven through eighteen. While you're turning there, I hope, this, I hope this sinks in. Glorify God. Lift up his name. Prayer is not a burden. It is a privilege. Let us pray to our God for who he is, who he's declared himself to be. Pray for his kingdom and his will. And let's pray as David prays as I close us with this. I guess we're starting in verse 10. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and your rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you, for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all of our fathers were. Our days in the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided a building, you uh, for, provided for a building, you a house for your holy name. It comes from your own hand and it is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the righteousness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in our hearts, in the hearts of your people, and direct them toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.